But I'm going to ask you if you've ever experienced trying to explain something to somebody, but you just cannot seem to find the words. Maybe this video will help you understand what I mean. I know that describes a good many of my sermons. I know it does. I'm just going to get it out there. I know it does. But it's a frustrating experience. You're trying to say something. It means so much to you. You're, you're so passionate about it, but it gets bottled up. And it's frustrating for the one trying to explain. It's frustrating to the one trying to listen. And sometimes I feel that way, and especially when I'm preaching a series that is more topical than expositional. That's what this one another series is that we're calling together. It's like starting a sermon. Here's an analogy, one of the best ways that I know to explain what it's like when you preach a topical sermon. It's like being dropped off in the middle of the Adirondack Park and being given a compass and a survival bag and, and being told, find your way home. That's kind of what it's like. Now think about the Adirondack Park system. Six million acres. This is my neck of the woods. I'm from central New York. Adirondacks aren't too far from there. It's the size of Vermont. It's three times the size of Yellowstone Park. And if I was lost there, here's what I would want. I would think you'd want this too. I'd want a handheld GPS with the ability to be able to zoom out and give me a big picture of the entire park and show me right where I am right now and how to get out of there. That's what I would want. And that's actually the way that we're going to try to approach this message. We're going to do it today and in a few minutes we're going to find our way, hopefully, Lord willing, to this verse. And if you have your Bibles open, which I'm going to ask everybody to get their Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. If you're going to use one of the Bibles in, in the back of that pew right in front of you, it's almost all the way to the end of the Bible. And then go back a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 5, 5. Here's where we're going to get to. Here's actually our starting point. We're going to be dropped off right here, and then we're going to zoom out and make our way back here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's where we're starting. If you want to put it this way, that's our insertion point into the book of 1 Peter. Now I'm going to zoom all the way out and we're going to look at the entire book briefly and then get ourselves right back to 1 Peter and start our journey. Let's go all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Wide zoom. Verse 1. Let's all do this together. That's why I want your Bibles in front of you. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to go slowly. I'm going to make sure you're with me. It's very, very simple what I'm going to show you. Very clear. 1 Peter 1.1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Five cities. If you want to know where they are on our map today, it's modern Turkey. 
They formed kind of a postal route. They went from one to the other. So Peter wrote this letter and went to probably the very first church is in order, Pontus. And then went, once they read it, they sent the letter on to Galatia. They didn't have copy machines. They're, these weren't emailed back then. So the letter went to one church, read, studied, went to the next church. Kind of a postal route. And we're talking about the time in Rome where Nero is on the throne. The Roman Empire, by the way, if you didn't know this, was very tolerant. If they conquered you, this is actually very interesting. It's very important for you to know this. If they conquered you, they would allow you to keep your culture. They would allow you to keep your religion. As long as you would bring into it the Roman gods and goddesses. As long as you would do that, they're fine with your gods. They're fine with your culture. But that's not true of the Roman mentality and attitude to the Christian. Both the Jew and the Christian were considered in Rome as being pagans. Isn't that ironic, the way that we use that word today? They were considered pagans... Because they refused the Jew and the Christian to worship the Roman gods and goddesses. So they were actually considered irreligious. And they would not do what was actually a right of citizenry in Rome. It wasn't really a right, it was a demand. If you want to be in the Roman Empire, then you needed to appear before a painting of the Caesar... And before that painting, they would have it on a pedestal, on a backdrop. And they had it in all municipalities and all towns and cities. Before that painting was a fire and a pot. And next to that fire and a pot was another container with incense. And if you wanted to be considered a loyal Roman citizen, then when you were called to do this, you had to take a pinch of incense, you had to hold it over the flames and sprinkle it in, let the flames rear up, and look at that painting and go, Caesar is Lord. That's what you had to do. And Christian after Christian was brought before these paintings and these portraits of the Caesars and, and told, if you want to live, if you want to be part of our kingdom, part of our empire, here's what you need to do. And the Jewish people and the Christians refused, now listen, and they were put to death. What would you do? What would you do in that situation? I mean, just think honestly for a moment. And by the way, I believe the Bible is clear. That is going to be the future for the church. They're going to be given the opportunity to take a mark called 666 or the mark of the beast. If you want to live, if you want to be considered a loyalist to this world's ruler, then you need to do that. And your inspiration, Christian, if that time comes in our lifetimes, is the Roman Christians on this postal route in these five cities who refused. See, Peter wrote this letter around A.D. 64. And I'm going to tell you what happened in A.D. 64 in the Roman capital. In fact, it was July 18th that a fire started. Many of you know this. It was a massive fire. It raged in the city of Rome. Did you know that Rome had 14 districts? 
10 of the 14 were destroyed by this fire. Now earlier, Nero, the mad empire on the throne, had, had come to the Senate and said, I want to knock down the slums and I want to build palace homes where they are. And the Senate refused him. So many believe that Nero is the one that started these fires. He had it started. In fact, when the people were trying to put the flames out, there were actually Roman guards forbidding them from doing that. In fact, new fires would start if the, if the old fires went out. And Nero shifted the blame to the Christians. He blamed the Christians. Now listen, even though the district where all the Christians lived was completely burned down, Nero successfully turned the Roman sentiment against the Christians and persecution began to ramp up the likes of which had never been seen before in Christendom. He rounded them up, Nero did. He put them on poles and crucified them. He had outdoor parties at night in his garden. And he actually took Christians, he, boy, he put tar all over them and hung them up on poles and lit them alive to light his garden parties at night. This is not made up. This is true history. He had, he had them sewn alive inside animal skins, and then thrown out before wild beasts and eaten. Others he had just crucified along the roadway. Why? Because Christianity would not bow to the false religion of Rome. Now, all of this is about to happen when 1 Peter was written. None of it had happened yet. The signs of persecution ramping up are all there. And Peter writes this entire book to prepare the church for what was going to come. Unimaginable suffering. Unimaginable persecution. Now, listen, when you get a medical disease that scares you, when you lose your job because your company is downsizing, that's not called persecution. That's difficult, that's a trial, but persecution is when you suffer for the name of Christ. And the church is about to suffer in ways that none of them could ever imagine. So let's go on this little tour where we've, we've taken it all the way out to 1 Peter 1. We're going to make our way back to our insertion point in chapter 5, verse 5. But look at your Bibles with me. Let me show you what Peter is doing to prepare the church. Chapter 2, verse 15 he tells them to do good and silence the false rumors against them. You see, the Christians were accused of being cannibals. Why? Because they celebrated the Lord's Supper like we're doing this weekend, the body and the blood of Jesus. So Rome took that and twisted it and said, they're a bunch of cannibals. They deserve to be persecuted. And Peter says, well, do good in such an extent that they won't be able to find anything wrong with your character or your conduct. He tells them in chapter 2, verse 21, to endure suffering. How? Follow Christ's example. Because he suffered for you. He suffered before you. Watch how he did it and follow his example. 
In chapter 3, verse 9, he instructed them, listen, don't repay evil for evil. That's going to be the response of your flesh. When you're hurt, you're going to want to hurt back. Don't do that. Instead, I want you to bless, verse 9. I want you to take hurtful people, and I want you to show them grace. In verse 12, he reminded them that God is against those who do evil. Look at verse 13. He is for those who do good. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good rather than suffer for doing evil. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Peter taught them that suffering even can help you overcome sin. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. He reminds them that they're already living in the last stage of the plan of God before Christ returns. Take hope in that. So don't be surprised, verse 12, at these fiery trials, this persecution that's unlike anything you've ever experienced. Because they're coming, chapter 5, verse 8, ultimately from the devil who hates you. I go back to chapter 4, verse 19, and this is the verse right before chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here we go. We've got an entire book that was written to prepare the church for what God, through inspiration, showed Peter was coming. It hadn't broken out yet to the degree that it's going to. It's about to. And Peter writes to prepare the churches, and I believe, Christian brother and sister, that this book is preparing us. I believe we're going to see persecution more and more. We're already seeing it. But I, I think we're going to see it more and more in our day, and we need to be ready for it. Jesus warned Matthew chapter 10, 22, you can see it on the screen, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, how do we endure to the end? This is why Peter wrote this book. How are you going to endure when you're going through this intense suffering for Christ's sake? And the way that he is going to explain that we endure to the end picks up at our very first point. You ready? Here we go. I got three points for you. Very simple message, but it's hard hitting. The first one is this. Elders, those are leaders of the church, do your job. The suffering church needs you. And he takes three verses to really explain this. So I exhort, verse 1, chapter 5, so I exhort... This is the word parakaleo. I call elders to my side. Let's do this together. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, I would imagine that some of us have come from churches where the elders were very different than this description. I mean, it's a hard position. 
It's not easy. We warn our men that come onto the elder board, that's the leadership team that is charged to govern your church and care for your church. We warn them every single time, be ready, be ready, because the devil will hate you. And we've seen that time and time again. So elders are the spiritual leaders of a local church. And there's never just one of them in a church. If you're at a church and they've got one elder, I would be really careful about that because everywhere in the Bible, they exist in a plurality, meaning there's more than one. Because no one person is to be vested with spiritual authority in the church. Instead, it's a group of elders. So you're not looking at a lead pastor that's invested with all of the spiritual authority of our church. I'm one of ten elders here. And they are to shepherd the church. They are to feed. They are to protect. They are to care for the church, for the people in the church. And for these people in Peter's mind who are about to suffer such intense persecution, they need to experience the help and the comfort and the guidance of the elders because they exercise oversight. They govern willingly. They don't domineer people. They're to be good examples to the church. And Peter is warning that terrible persecution is coming. So elders, get your A-game on by God's grace. You're not the final authority of the church. You know that, right? No elder is the final authority of a church. God is. So God writes, or Peter writes through inspiration from God, lead as God would have you. Look at those five words, as God would have you. You answer to the chief shepherd. You're not the final authority. You're subjected to him. You're accountable to Jesus because that, that chief shepherd is coming back. So be humble. Now, you want to know where you can see humility in a non-peripheral or a rather in a peripheral view of this. Look at verse 1 for a moment. I'll show it to you. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. Now, he could have said what he said in chapter 1, verse 1. We just read it. He could have said, I'm an apostle. Do you want to know one of the many differences between an apostle of Jesus Christ and an elder? The apostle has capital A authority. The apostle teaches and preaches as God streams it through him. God speaks it through him without error. That's not true with my preaching. I'm incredibly capable of error, which is why you need to have your Bibles open, which is why you need to gently come and talk to me. If you see that I'm in error. But that's a difference between an apostle, one of capital A authority, and these elders whom he is writing to, they have little A authority. He could have dropped the apostle title, but he didn't. He says, I'm one of you. I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. You want to see Peter's humility? Do you know what it cost him to say that? Do you know what it cost Peter to write that? He had rejected Christ and his sufferings. 
He ran away from Christ in his time of need when he was being unfairly, illegally judged that night before he was crucified. He abandoned Jesus. At best, he was one of those who stood at a distance watching Jesus get crucified. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ is a tacit admission. Listen, I failed. I failed. But I was restored. That's humility. Can you sense the humility in Peter writing some 30 years after those terrible events when he failed. I mean, Jesus warned him, Peter, Satan has asked for permission to sift you. And Peter bragged, don't worry about it, Jesus. I'm going to follow you all the way, even if it's to my own death. And not only an hour and a half later, he failed. I'm one of you elders, Peter writes, and we must shepherd our people well because persecution is coming. But it takes two to tango, they say. So Peter moves to a very specific demographic in the churches. Point number two, young people, put yourself in your own place so the elders can help you. Look what he writes, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So Peter had just, what did he do? He just instructed the elders, submit to the chief shepherd, lead as God would have you, care, oversee, do it well, the church is going to need you. Now he turns to a group in the church who need to act in a very similar way. Now they need to subject themselves to the elders. Likewise, young people, he writes, Likewise, you who are younger, put yourself willingly beneath the elders' authority. Now, this is admittedly difficult. Peter has used the word subject, by the way, several times. If you can look at that verse one more time, be subject to the elders. Where have we seen it before? What does it mean? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, he wrote, Be subject for the Lord's sake, this is the entire church, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Are you talking about Nero? Peter, you're telling us to submit, to subject ourselves to Nero? Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil? Oh, you mean, Peter must mean, subject yourself to good leaders. That's not what the text says. Oh, it does say to those who do evil, sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So there's a bit of a way out some of us want to take. We'll subject ourselves to the, pre the president of the United States who punishes evil and does good to the good. This is not what the text says. A few verses later, now he talks to slaves. 1 Peter 2, 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not partial respect. Don't just bury your bitterness and resentment and act the right way. With all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. unjust. So here we see subjection needs to be a voluntary virtue 
a voluntary act that comes from a virtue, even to those who are unjust. And that is terribly difficult to do. See, the word subject or subject yourself was a military command in the Greek language. It was for troops who were out of line. The general would bark this word and the troop, the soldier knew they were either forward of the line or backward of the line as he was walking down the ranks. It was to get back information. So this is what it means. It means to get back information. So why does Peter address specifically Younger people. And it's a common struggle with young people, listen, of every generation to submit to authority. It's just hard. Interestingly, what makes it even more difficult with our younger generation today is that they actually have more knowledge available to them than the adults in their lives. In fact, when it comes to knowledge, parents, be honest, they're obsolete. The internet is their source. In many cases, kids today have more knowledge in many areas than their adult parents We often see kids go to college and suddenly they have more knowledge than their parents. That's what the word sophomore, by the way, originally meant. It means wise fools. So if you have a child that goes off to college and their sophomore year, they come back and they're they're like telling you how to do everything. That's pretty normal. Not good, but it's pretty normal. By the way, I shudder to remember what I did the summer of my sophomore year with my parents. I had taken some psychology classes. When you go to college, you're going to take a psychology class, and one of the classes that you're going to get most excited about in college will be your psychology class. It is incredibly fascinating. And I took some classes. I originally, or I I ultimately ended up with a graduate degree in counseling, but I took some psychology classes my sophomore year, and I came home that summer As a wise fool, I sat my mom and my dad down. I shudder to remember this. I truly do. I sat them down and I explained to them why it is that their marriage was not as good as it could be. (laughs) To my mom and my dad's credit, they didn't say a word to me because they knew in just a few years I got married and it all came crashing down. You might have your teenage sons that are telling you and your daughters telling you how you probably could parent better. Just grin and bear it. Because one day, Lord willing, they're going to be a parent. And they might hopefully come to you one day and say, you know what, that time that I told you how to parent, I'm really sorry about that. I just did not know. See, we get all this knowledge, and knowledge does have a tendency to puff us up. And young people today have more knowledge than probably they've ever had in any generation before them, but they don't necessarily have the life experiences or the wisdom to organize and apply that knowledge. You know, but here's one thing you want to know about the millennial generation. This is very insightful. One expert said this, millennials don't disrespect authority. Now, I want you to hear the rest of this, but I want you to hear that especially. Because my generation and older thinks they disrespect authority all the time. 
They see Senator Dianne Feinstein and walking in, the, in that room and all of these little fifth graders telling her, we want you to accept the Green Deal. And her little response, I don't think was the best. I know what I'm doing, you don't, so you need to listen. Well, there is some good knowledge in that, right? There's some good counsel in that. It would be really good for younger people to listen more. And by the way, it would be really good for older people to listen more. But one expert said this, I'm going to finish the statement. Millennials don't disrespect authority, they disrespect authoritarianism. There's a big, big difference. That's generally true, and unfortunately, their often asked why question is perceived as anti-authority. They will ask, why do we need to do the things the, the way they've always been done? And if you're going to receive that as being a fight for authority, then you're going to react negatively. What they really want is to be told why. What's the reasoning for it? What's the rationale? Just explain it to me. So to be told by Peter, younger people, be subject to your elders, and you're a younger person, you might be thinking, well, I'd be willing to, Peter, if you can show me why, and Peter will gladly do that, and he's about to do that, but not until he addresses the entire church on their need for humility. Point number three. All of us dress up and lie low, and I will explain this. Do you know anyone who does the humble brag? Think about this. I'll explain. Here's an example of the humble brag. Friends are always telling me how smart I am, but I just don't see it. That is hardly humility. How about the awards speech humility? Quote, I am so humbled that so many people want to be my friend. That's not humility. Or the compliment rejection humility, which masks itself as humility, quote, thanks, but it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Christians say this all the time, that is not humility. Humility is rare, but when you meet a person that truly personifies it, you find true inspiration from that person's life. Look at verse 5 again. Clothe yourselves, Peter said, all of you. The entire church, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter is preparing the churches for incredible persecution. He tells the elders, you got to lead well. The church is going to need you. Young people, you got to yield to your elders. They are God's means for your protection and care. But here's the answer to the why question. Why should we be subject to the elders? Because God will oppose you if you will not humble yourself. I don't know a better motivational reason than that. Peter isn't just talking to younger people here. He's not just talking to elders. He's talking to the entire church. Look at those three words, all of you. And he tells all Christians, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, here we go. You're ready? This is the meat of the whole message. It's the part, if you didn't get anything else out of this message, this is the part I really don't want you to leave without. The phrase, clothe yourself, or clothe, your, clothe yourselves, 
That was a word most common. It's one word in the Greek. That was a word most commonly spoken of towards slaves. That was a master telling a slave, put on your apron because you're about to be busy serving. So in your mind, I want you to get that, that analogy, that word picture. Clothe yourselves. You're putting on an article of clothing. You're putting on an apron. You're tying the strings tight. But what are you to tie on? Humility. That was a word that in the very early secular documents going all the way before Christ, go back all the way before Christ, that was a word that described the Nile River in its low stage. That word in secular document, documents described the Nile River, which is already a low river. You're not going to get whitewater rafting on the Nile River. It's not coming down from mountains. It's already low, but at low stage, it's incredibly low. So humility means not rising far from the ground. It means to be low. That is the best definition biblically of the Greek word here. It means to lie low to the ground. Now the Greco-Roman world, meaning the Greek and Roman world, which had been fused into one culture, it despised humility. When Peter wrote this, they despised it. They described miserable people who had no confidence as humble people. They viewed humility, that's an appropriate virtue for a slave, but it's an inappropriate one for a free person. That, that is in writing after writing from philosopher after philosopher, statesman after statesman, they despised humility in that culture. But God opposes the proud. And that, by the way, is your good news. Now you're hearing the gospel. The word gospel means the good news. Why is that good news? Because not one person can be saved until they recognize their great need for salvation. So God will bring a person low before he lifts that person up. He will bring that person to spiritual poverty before he will give them the riches of salvation. When God opposes the proud, that is grace in operation. This is what you want God to be doing. Because if God doesn't do it, there's no power that can kill your pride. Now, we get that about salvation. I think probably most of us understand that, what I just explained. God brings a person low before he lifts them up. But the humble person, the humble Christian, never, ever truly rises. That's the part we don't get. Not in experiential reality. The humble person never rises up within himself. He stays low to the ground the rest of his life, the rest of her life, choosing to tie on the virtue of humility as a way of actually being. Now, are you hearing what I just said? Because that's actually much more profound than it sounds. Yes, God must oppose the proud, or they will never get to spiritual poverty, beatitudes, in order to turn to Christ. Why would you turn to Christ if you think you're just fine in your self-righteousness? He's got to bankrupt your soul. And he will do that in many, many ways through the Spirit of God, through experiences, through his word, through somebody's influence. 
If you go to Psalm 107, you'll see four really clear examples of how God brings four different people to the end of themselves so that they will turn to him and he can exalt them. It's an incredible psalm. If you have a parent of a wayward child, you can take great, great comfort in that psalm. But we get that about salvation, but what I'm really impressing on you is this. A humble Christian never rises off the ground. They never go, well, good, I'm saved now. Now I could be about me. They live a life now where they've learned on, they're learning and they've learned to tie on the clothing of humility as a way of living with each other. Jesus says this very clearly, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's that God will humble you and exalt you part of it. But I want you to see what God says that a lot of us miss. He's saying that you can exalt, you can humble yourself. In fact, you must choose to humble yourself. Humility is something that the Christian can choose because God has set that person free from the domineering power of self-absorbing sin. Now, I'm going to say that again because this is so incredible that a lot of us don't understand this. We're not living in this power and the truth of this power. I will say it again, Christian, you can choose humility because of the work of Christ on the cross for you. And here's the best part. You must choose humility or you're not going to endure suffering. But it's going to be a daily battle. Martin Luther said so insightfully, we are all deeply curved in on ourselves. That is Martin Luther's way of saying our eyes are mostly about ourselves. The gospel turns those, those eyes outward. And what Peter is teaching is that suffering is one of the means to choosing humility. I'll show you what I mean by that. Remember the Apostle Paul in his famous verse in 2 Corinthians 12, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. What was that thorn? Some people think it was blindness or nearsightedness. I think it's pretty clear. It's a messenger of Satan to harass me. This was demonic in origin. And that was given to me in the flesh by who? Well, God's the one he asked three times to take it away. And each time God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So really, who gave it to him has to ultimately sovereignly be God. But why did God give it to him? To keep me from becoming conceited. Listen, Paul was the greatest theologian of the early church. He was the most influential apostle of the early church, arguably. Something has to be done or the flesh will rise up in arrogance. How is he going to stay low to the ground? God allowed or gave, the text doesn't say, but some, for some reason, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, a demonic messenger of Satan in order to keep him humble. Has God given you something? We all have a lifelong battle with pride. It's not only some of us, it's every one of us. You know, every once in a while, my wife will like my sermon. That's, I'm being serious. Nobody dices them up like Denise. I think it's a spiritual gift. 
And on those rare weekends that she does like my sermon, my kids will come along and help further my humility. It's amazing the power of our families in helping us lie low to the ground. And you know what? I need that. I struggle with humility. Listen, think of the toxic elixir of standing up here while all of you stare at me listening to my words. And you come week after week, 600 people to this church. What do you think could possibly happen in my own heart? And what do you think sometimes does happen? Thank God for my wife and my children who will remind me, you know what, that could have been a whole lot better sermon. I need this. You need humility. You have a lifelong battle with pride. And it's at the root of every single sin. I want you to think about that for a moment. Every single sin that you will ever commit, the very root of it, mixed in there somewhere, is pride. You're not going to find an exception to this. Are you angry at someone? And thinking of revenge? That can happen like that on Route 78, can it? You got to put on humility. You got to tie it on. You can choose to do this. Are you experiencing success and your heart is craving more? Well, Christian, put on humility. Are you worrying about the shape of your body? Beach season is coming. Christian, you better put on humility. Are you delaying doing something that God has clearly asked of you? You got to put on humility. Have you been wronged and you're holding unforgiveness over somebody else? You've got to put on humility. Are you in a meeting at work and somebody says something and you want to rise up and you want to prove how wrong they are? You got to put on humility. Are you on the court or the field and you want to be perceived as the best player on your team? That's okay until all of your self-absorption demands it. You better put on humility. Because humility will move yourself from the center of your life and put God in its place and bring other people in. That's what humility does. It's incredibly powerful. C.S. Lewis put a, I think, a pop definition of humility. I thought it was pretty good. I've said it before. He's wrote about this in Mere Christianity. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. A groveling, low self-esteem Christian is not a humble Christian. It's actually inverted pride. They're some of the most prideful Christians you'll ever meet. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. You just don't factor into your conversation. Your eyes aren't on yourself. You're lying low to the ground, and the only thing you can see are the people above you. And that's the way it ought to be. That's what it looks like when you tie on humility toward each other, toward one another. I'm going to close by reading to you what I believe is the Bible's clearest glimpse of humility that you can find. And it goes like this in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, here it is, count others more significant than yourselves. That's humility. Let each of you look, here's humility, not only to your own interests, his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's humility, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He tied it on. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What will it cost me to serve the people around me? I'm willing to pay it. That's humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's humility, and nobody showed it like Jesus. Persecution is coming, Peter said. Elders, get on your A-game. Do your job. Govern and care well. The church is going to need you. And younger people, don't fight against the leadership of the church. That's pride. That's not humility. Subject yourself. Yield. Listen, you don't have all the knowledge. You don't have the wisdom yet for your knowledge. So listen to those who are leading the church by God's anointing. And all of us tie on humility to everybody in the church. Lie low to the ground in love. Amen? Let's pray.